Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. I'm your host, Dan Fuller, recording live from the bookshop. I'm joined remotely by my mate, Sam Fisher. What's going on, Sam? Hello, hello, hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm keeping an eagle eye on the door, <laughs> hoping no one comes in. Um, when the rain keeps the customers away, the podcast yeah. um, people might may play. <laughs> yeah. Although I think now there that's... might be some people wanting to buy some cards. <laughs> um, uh, should we pause there? <laughs> and then you pick it up. <laughs> okay. Fucking hell. Okay, after that brief intermission selling uh, greeting card, we're back. Um, that's, that's real life. That's just that's how it happens. That's how the cookie we're, crumbles. We're trying to have the ambience of the bookshop uh, bleed into the podcast experience. Um, yeah. And it's, it's very dull. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them um, love cards, Dan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, actually, it's actually a common gripe of ours how, how hard it is to keep up the greeting card sales because we are all not massive greeting cards um, enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to keep up with the greeting cards enthusiasts, let me tell you. Um, but we do, I mean, that's not to say that we we haven't got a fine selection which we do but please please don't hesitate do continue to come in and buy greetings cards because yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um we have a big announcement to make today am i right sam we do yeah i should stop talking about greetings cards we are having <laughs> a festival in uh, october to mark our fifth birthday um <laughs> bf day whoop whoop indeed uh and it's going to be uh a full day and an evening of um uh events workshops Book sales, performances. It's going to be wild. Um, uh, we just confirmed off. the headliner. Yep. Which, but I'm not going to tell you who it is, so that's just a little tease. <laughs> In two weeks' time, we'll be shouting it from the rooftops. But let me tell you, it's two very exciting and very hackney relevant people. So Indeed. It's off-site as well. It is. It's in a church. Um, it's in St. Peter's in De Beauvoir, which is this 250 capacity church in the main space and then a space 100 capacity where the events will be completely free um, and another space that's got 200 capacity. So, yeah, and we're partnering, partnering with 10 independent publishers, uh, the names of which I'm not going to reel off off the top of my head in case I missed anyone and offend anyone. Uh, but you can find the full list uh, on our website. Um, yeah, and we'll be updating the, the program of events regularly in the next couple of months as things get confirmed so yeah very exciting we're all, we're all very excited to be inhabiting an ecclesiastical space as well always always <laughs> excited to be inhabiting an ecclesiastical space <laughs> um, <laughs> should have a greens card for that <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got a really exciting guest on the podcast today uh we have are joined by dr richard barnett author of wherever we are we come to the end uh, which is a modernist poem inspired by and intertextual with the Tractatus of Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, it was a lot for me to chew on. <laughs> Sounds a bit lowbrow to me, Dan. Yeah, yeah very, very lowbrow. Uh, real pop culture fair. <laughs> I can't wait to um, to hear his take on the latest Miley Cyrus release. I think it's going to be... <laughs> <laughs> no, Richard was he was a really good guest. And in fact that's double Richards. He's Richard number two in in, in two weeks. That's uh wow. I don't know. It's a An embarrassment of Richards. 
Uh, no, he was a he was a really good guest and uh, very lucid and a really good raconteur, uh, as I'm sure you will all hear. He is unfortunately not able to come into the shop to sign anything because he lives all the way up in Scotland. Um, but his dulcet tones will certainly uh, take your attention for the next half hour or so. Um, so on that note, I'll pass on to Richard. <laughs> So I'm going to read section four of the poem. This is Wittgenstein on the train heading east towards the front and partly anticipating what he may find there and partly reflecting on what east means in German culture and German history. So, four, a toy train rolls across a map table. 4.01. Men propped like firewood, lulled by the sway and the rattle. We sleep and watch, we are carried east. 4.02, at sunset the day begins, as dark as the inside of your belly. 4.021, looking out at my reflection, at the form of me, at nothing. 4.1, eastern nights are filled with forest. Ein Österreicher traumt von Wald, so wie ein Englander von mir traumt. An Austrian dreams of the forest just as an English uh, an Austrian dreams of the forest just as an Englishman dreams of the sea. One cannot see far in the vault. 4.11 Der Vault, the forest. Caesar in the Gallic Wars says that one may walk east for 60 days and not reach the end of the vault. Waking into a dark wood, what do I see? Birch and alder, beech and hornbeam, eyes in the leaves. I am born in a chaos of roots, carnage paused. Carp and pike hanging in columns of shade, flicking fins, watching. The immense absence of a bull bison, hoofprints, turds, musk. Cauldron bogs, dark and rancid, sated with bronze and bone. Pagan thickets, hills of crosses, bears and wolves dispute. In a glade, St. Jerome reads to a lion. In a shaft of sunlight, I kneel before a stag. The victors of Teutoburg feast on my carcass, blowing raw notes from my flesh-tagged femur. Truces et ceruli oculi, rutili comi, magna corpora et tantum ad impedum valida. Fierce blue eyes, red hair, huge frames, fit only for sudden exertion. Tacitus dreams the Germans. We dream endless east, empty east. Okay, Richard, thank you so much for that reading. That was awesome. Uh, very evocative. Um, I've never actually been to the, uh, the landscape you described, but uh, I think it was closing my eyes there for a moment. It felt like, like I was there. Um, ha- how are you? Um, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm very well. Very excited to be uh, to be talking about the book. Yeah, congratulations. Richard is here to join us to talk about where we are when we come to the end, uh, which is a poem chiefly regarding uh, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein's time on the front lines in the Great War, World War One, in the Austro-Hungarian Imperial Army as it was um, then. Now, it's the poem is structured very similarly to the Tractatus, which I must admit I have tried and failed to read many times as a younger man. <laughs> um, but I definitely recognise the, the structure in there. And um, so the poem is kind of not only about Wittgenstein in a, in a kind of biographical sense, but it also kind of 
deeply engages with his work. And, and, and if you get started, Richard, I, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about um, the poem, how you wrote it, how it kind of interlocks with the work of Wittgenstein and um, sort of how the ideas first came to you. Sure, absolutely. Well, th this, this really started for me when I was in my late teens. And it, almost quite by chance, I happened to come across the Tractatus. I think it was in the school library just at the time when I was starting to sort of read poetry seriously and sort of sort of with an eye to kind of how I how I might start to write it myself. And I, I certainly can't claim as a kind of 17 year old to have had any kind of flashes of insight into the book. I found it as mystifying as, as almost everybody else does who picked it up. But like a lot of poetry, it seemed to say a great deal more than simply the words in order on the page. There was a a charisma and a kind of depth to it and the sense that something, something fascinating and big and kind of mysterious was being alluded to. And as, as I say, I, 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 I had no sort of great insights into what I was going to do with it at sort of 17, 18, but I, I was very strongly at the time getting into modernism and that sort of sense of form, that sense of kind of experimentation with form and taking, taking forms from sort of far outside of poetry and, and trying to do new things with them. So I, I sort of, you know, you know how it is, you kind of file these things away in your mind and you think, oh, I'd love to, if I, if I ever become stupidly ambitious, I will kind of, I will, I will try and do something with that. And so I, I, I the more I read about Wittgenstein, the more I felt I, I had something to say. And it, the, the, it went through a series of phases. There was a phase where the other episode in his life that is fascinating is during the Second World War, where he retired from his Cambridge, resigned from his Cambridge professorship, and went and worked as a like a pharmacy assistant at a hospital in London. Sort of not 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 quite sort of anonymously, but sort of very much trying not to be, as he was then, the kind of you know one of the world's most famous philosophers. And I, I tried writing about that, and it just became this awful kind of sub Tom Stoppard play of ideas and just too too frantic and too much going on and and uh, and all of that but the, the the turning point came when I um I was I was reading about 10 years ago a, a, a there's, there's a wonderful biography of Wittgenstein by Ray Monk which I'd, I'd rec recommend to anybody it's just about the most lucid explanation of the life and the work and Monk in this biography quotes a letter that Wittgenstein wrote to his nephew in the 30s in which he says almost in passing that the First World War um, saved him. He says, the war saved me. I don't know what I'd have done without it. Now, like a, like a lot of people in my generation, I, I, I really learned the history of the First World War and to some extent learned poetry through the war poets, especially Owen. And of course, from those, from those poets, you, you, you get such a sort of distinct picture of the war. The war is a horror, the war is a tragedy. And to find that this, you know, this astoundingly intelligent, extremely sensitive, thoroughly undeceived man um, had felt that the war had been this sort of, in some ways, the making of it. That, that, that became the question that I could write about. In a sense, writing this book was trying to answer that question, was trying to work out what on earth he meant by, you know, by this idea that the war had saved him. So it, it, very quickly then, it sort of, it, it made sense to sort of take the, the, the Tractatus, which, um, the, the, the remarkable story of the book is that he was he, he'd worked on the ideas that are in the book a little bit before the First World War, um, sort of in Cambridge with Bertrand Russell. And we can talk a little bit about that later on, if you like. Um, but he took the notes to war with him, almost literally sort of in his, you know, in his rucksack, taking them to the front, working on them um, sort of in, in downtime at the front, that sort of thing. And that struck me as the most astonishing um, sort of collision of things. Because, the, as, as you alluded to, the, the, the Tractatus is such a striking book because it is so carefully and formally structured 
some critics have compared it to a kind of crystal. It's rather like one of those geometric forms that you see mathematicians playing around with, that everything is just in its precise place and it sort of interlocks together to form this beautiful structure. So I loved the idea of a young man sort of trying to create this beautiful crystalline object in the squalor and the horror and the sort of mess of the, of the, um, of the Eastern Front. Um, so it, yeah, it, it, it sort of made sense to try and to, 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 to take the form of the Tractatus and to sort of subject it to a kind of artillery bombardment, you know, to kind of blow it apart and sort of see what was, see what came out and see what I could sort of see what of my own I could then sort of put in and reassemble to, to try and firstly, in a, in a fairly sort of straight historical sense to tell the story of how that book came to be, how Wittgenstein uh, not only wrote it, but also in a sense kind of wrote himself through that war. I think he, he, he remade himself through his, uh, through his service. Um, but also to try and, th this is where it, 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 it got a lot trickier and, and, and why it took me sort of five years to get this fairly short poem together, to try and connect the ideas of the, 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 the ideas coming out of the philosophy with the experiences. Um, to try and sort of, again, work out how the ideas might have been shaped by, by, by what he went through. Um, that kind of leads fairly neatly onto the next question I was going to ask you, because um, when you when you read the poem, um, it is full of such like evocative imagery and and, and some quite beautiful uh, thoughts, um, which when you're kind of looking at uh, logical philosophy and, and and kind of Wittgenstein in particular. Uh, unless you're looking at his work and his writing from a certain kind of way, I don't know if beauty is necessarily the first word <laughs> that comes to mind. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of elegant, I, I, would, I would make a case for a kind of elegance, but I know what you yeah. mean about beauty. Yeah, for sure, for sure, elegant, definitely. But uh, yeah, so, uh, but, but, but it, it definitely works, I see it. When, and and, and um, for those of you who won't have read it, um, when the podcast goes out, uh, the second section begins with uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for? An equation, uh, which oh, is yes, yes. describing the curb, uh, the trajectory of a, of, a, of a shell, essentially. Um, and I, I thought, I felt that that was a very, very kind of wonderful way to kind of connect what something which is, you know, kind of sort of fundamentally chaotic, you know, this terrible tumor mm, of, mm. of conflict with uh, kind of something actually happening logically in a strange kind of way. Um, so, so, yeah, those are just kind of my kind of sort of semi-garbled thoughts. But, uh, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about how, the, you know, how you reconciled uh, the desires of poetry and, and, and the kind of very human figure uh, who's concerned, you know, with love, the love of... Um, the love yeah. of his family and and uh, his I, I believe I believe David's um, was his lover. Am I am I correct? No. Yeah, again, that well that that's an interesting story in itself. And again, maybe yeah. we can we can we can uh, we can come back to that. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I, I found talking about this book, it, 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 you end up wanting to say about 10 things at once. So I sort of yeah, feel like, yeah, the, course, you know, the yeah. three stooges trying to go through a door and I get rather sort of stuck with that. But <laughs> yeah. uh, no, sorry, I guess your question about, about sort of um, order, and, order and chaos and sort of order and that. Now, I mean, the, the, just as a, as, a, as a writer kind of thinking line to line, the, the, the great pleasure of working on this has been balancing those, those, those two things, because in some ways it's the story of his career. Um, there's a uh, there's a lovely scene. One of one of the the, the early things I read on this was a screenplay that um, uh, the critic uh, Terry Eagleton had written for Derek Jarman's yeah. uh, Wittgenstein yeah. film, which which Jarman in the end threw out and made a completely different movie. But there's a there's a lovely scene at the end of that, 
um, where where Wittgenstein's on his deathbed, and 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 Eagleton sort of tries to tries as one might on one's deathbed to sort of think of a think of how a life might appear, um, sort of in retrospect, how you might bring some kind of order and coherence and closure to it. Mm-hmm. And the the metaphor he uses is um, it's 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 uh, it's it's uh, it's a man's I think skating on a beautiful sort of crystalline frozen lake but he realizes that that's not the truth of things the truth is what's under the lake and the truth of that is sort of you know is 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 jumbled and fragmented and rocky and it's the real texture of life and this is this is the journey that Wittgenstein goes on in his philosophy he comes out of the the chaos the bloodshed of the first world war with this incredibly rigorous logical attempt to 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 sort of delineate what is you know what is meaningful what is truth and what can what can actually be expressed in language and then really spends the second half of his career taking that apart completely and yeah. coming up with a, a completely different way of thinking. So what, one of the things I was trying to do in the book was to sort of, you know, foreshadowing can be so cheesy, especially if you're, if you're, if you're trying to be a sort of half-decent historian, but to sort of, yeah, to try, and, to try and have the book arguing with itself about whether this is, um, this is the right way to, 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 uh, to approach things or not. And I, it was also, sorry, I... <laughs> I wanted to bring in something of the voice of the Tractatus itself, because it, you, you'll know this from having yeah. read it. It has this quite distinctive voice. I, I think somebody described this as it's like God trying to talk to eternity. <laughs> it's this real attempt to sort of capture. Um, again, I return to this word sort of crystalline, but it's this real attempt to capture in sort of clarity and in kind of disciplined, distinct language, the nature of things and how language works. So it's language trying to sort of unpick itself. And so for, for, for me as a, as a sort of writer and a lover of modernism, it was great fun to throw hand grenades into that and to think mm. of, you know, Wittgenstein in the front line, trying to think these enormous thoughts about the nature of reality. And at the same, you know, then, then Russian shells fall into his, um, into his kind of artillery unit. Or the sergeant major comes along and sort of sends him off, mm. to, the first, uh, off to the front and all, all this sort of thing. So I, it, for me as well, it was a way of getting a handle on that experience of the war. You know, war is in some ways a kind of fundamentally chaotic, unpredictable thing, but it's also all about order. If you think mm. about sort of military life and tactics, you know, even down to sort of uniforms and the, the, the way in which days become, well, regimented, it's an entirely appropriate word here. So it, 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 the, the whole book for me is about sort of different kinds of tension between sort of order and, and, and chaos and the way in which kind of different voices break, sort of break through, break through into life. Oh, that's, that's... Absolutely fascinating, but it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. So you you, you talked about his relationship with David Hume Pinsent. Um, yes, yes, which is yes. Uh, I, I I keep calling him David Hyde Pierce, which is entirely wrong. So I I do apologise. It's a weird Fraser kind of um sort of thing breaking through here. But no, so the one of the experiences of the, of the war for Wittgenstein was that he um he he'd been at Cambridge very very close to another young student called David Hume Pinsent. Mm-hmm. Another philosopher, obviously extremely intelligent, although although possibly not in sort of Wittgenstein's um, sort of class of originality. And when war broke out, Wittgenstein um, went back to Austria and volunteered. And Pinsent volunteered, um, uh, well, tried to volunteer in the in the in the British Army. As it turned out, he was he was not the greatest physical specimen, so he I, he ended up doing experimental work for the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, Another another great theme of the Tractatus is silence and kind of the limits of meaning, what we are actually able to articulate in our lives. And and one of the kind of silence I write about is the is the the sort of the the, the Jewish history of his family, um, yeah. which yeah, yeah, came yeah, back in terrible ways to bite them in the in the nineteen thirties. 
But another kind of silence I wanted to write about was his sexuality. Um, I think the, the, the sort of very simplest way to put this is that Wittgenstein was gay. He yeah. obviously lived at a time and a place where you couldn't be a sort of out gay man in the way that a you know, modern sort of white, wealthy Austrian man could. Um, so he's not, he's not living a sort of out gay life. But he had a series of, throughout his life, very, very intense... Um, again, we don't... Another kind of silence kind of comes in the documentary record. We don't very often have terribly good sources for this kind of thing, so we're left to sort of reconstruct them as well as we can. But he certainly had a very close emotional relationship with um, David Hume Pinsent. Um, another thing that Wittgenstein ten tended to do, and we've got more evidence of this later in his life, he would have these very intense crushes um, or sort of very intense kind of one-sided relationships with people who wouldn't necessarily themselves know what was going on. Mm -hmm. So one of the, 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 the things I tried to do in the book, it's, it's very much written all from inside Wittgenstein's head. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's quite interesting in some ways to sort of think about how um, how this would have seemed from outside, what Pinson mm -hmm. would have made of this. Um, it, it's, 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 it's possible to argue they were very close indeed. It's possible to argue that Wittgenstein, that, I beg your pardon, it's possible to argue that Pinson would have seen this as simply a very, very close friendship. Mm -hmm. And Wittgenstein sort of brought a lot of unrequited feelings to this. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, fairly late in the war, Pinson was killed um, in, a, in a, 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 an aircraft accident, uh, an mm -hmm. experimental aircraft he was flying in broke up and he, there was no space for a parachute in the plane, so he just, he just fell to his death, sort of 6,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And this, this really was a turning point for Wittgenstein. If you look at his letters, he's absolutely distraught, absolutely broken up. Um, there's some evidence, and I, I dramatise this in the poem, that it provoked something like a suicide attempt towards the, um, yeah. towards the end of his war service. So yeah. whatever the nature of the relationship was, it evidently hit him and caused him to sort of, um, you know, this, this man who, had, who by this point had been through some of the worst fighting of the First World War was absolutely unstrung by the loss of this, this very close presence in his life. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um... So I kind of wanted to just sort of, you, you, when you were talking about uh, the relationship they had um, and also their kind of acquaintance at Cambridge, I kind of, something just popped to mind and, 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 and you, you might know this, you might not. Um, you, you, he's, he's referred to as volunteer Wittgenstein at times during the text. Uh, yeah. Is this, does, does this mean that he, he, he'd left, because he, he was at Cambridge before the war, as, as I understand? Yeah. So did he? He left Cambridge and and and, and went to serve voluntarily, um, in, in in this terrible conflict. If if that's the case, could you maybe give us a bit of context about uh, that? Because there's a, if 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 that's the case, it's it's quite a thing for a philosopher to go and 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 serve in such a way. I mean, I could be completely off base, um, but if you could kind of talk a little about uh, how he kind of came to be in the army, that'd be. I'm sure it would be really fascinating. Yes, absolutely, and and again, it's a it's a it's an absolutely striking story, and it's one of these things that makes you realise he was a he was a in some ways a very very um, strange man in 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 in, um, in lots of sort of aspects of his his life. Um, mm -hmm. Wittgenstein came from one of the most wealthy families in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. His father, Karl Wittgenstein, was a was a a, a sort of industrialist who yeah. made extraordinary amounts of money. I mean, we're we're talking sort of almost kind of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, comparative levels of wealth at the time. They were they were they were extraordinarily wealthy. They lived um, 
a, a life of almost sort of aristocratic opulence and um, uh, in in Vienna. Um, it was a very materially comfortable life, but it, it was not for Wittgenstein, especially for his brothers, a very easy life. One of the striking facts of the early life is that three of his brothers um, committed suicide. Yeah. And I, I, I think their father was a very loving man, but he was a very, very driven man. He had this almost a sort of catchphrase, which was das harte muss, the hard must. Yeah. So right through the family. And I, I, we shouldn't pin this too much on, on sort of Karl Wittgenstein. I, th I think there's a sort of combination of Prussianism in that kind of late 19th century militaristic kind of way. And there's also sort of Kantian philosophy with its emphasis on, you know, sort of um, duty and that sort of sense of the categorical imperative. Both of these come together for this, this, this sort of pre-war generation of young men to give them a kind of profound sense that they they must find their duty and that 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 if they don't do this it's a it's an equally kind of profound and deep sort of um failure on their part mm. rather like the cult of sort of suicide that grew up around around um the sorrows of young Werther, i think for these young men there's a sense of of of, of not not knowing what they're supposed to do with their lives and feeling a mm. tremendous sense of pressure to to do it and then a tremendous sense of failure if they don't live up to this this mm -hmm. this sort of extraordinary thing so so Wittgenstein is grows up with this sense of duty um and it, it initially sort of pushes him into his father really wants him to kind of as it were go into the family business and become something like an engineer so he he um it, I mean it's strange to think of but he, he goes to Manchester and flies kites up on the moors trying to kind of work out the basic principles of aeronautics and flight and all of this um but he's drawn to philosophy he's drawn to these sort of questions of the basis of mathematics how do we how do you know at the very most basic level how do we know that one and one is two what are we talking about when we talk about numbers and we mm -hmm. talk about sort of simple procedures like um addict so this is what draws him to um this is what draws him to cambridge bertrand russell at the time is trying to work out um a, a, a logical basis for mathematics that we don't we shouldn't have to accept anything as a kind of axiom that we just take for granted we should be able to kind of show thoroughly and logically how mathematics works and this becomes Wittgenstein's sort of project in the in the first part of his philosophy what what Russell is trying to do for numbers yeah. Wittgenstein is trying to do for language um, yeah. but yes all through this he is supported by by this immense Wittgenstein wealth and then the, the the really astounding moment comes when he is um, 19, uh, in 1914 he comes um, he comes back to Austria and he volunteers as a completely ordinary soldier as a sort of grunt we might say in an Austrian artillery regiment and you know this is the, the contemporaries of his um, become officers in you know the sort of very highfalutin uh, elite regiments of guards and things like that um, mm -hmm. But no, he he decides he's going to he's going to he's going to test himself. I think that's fundamentally what it is. He sees the war initially, at least, as a kind of test. So it's an opportunity to put aside everything he's inherited, not only the kind of material comforts, but also what we'd now call, I suppose, the privilege. Um, now, of course, he doesn't put it all aside. His letters in the, in the first few years of the war are full of complaints about the kind of people he's having to serve with. And how they're they're animals, and he doesn't he doesn't understand them, and they they don't understand him. And you know he's he's, I I I try to dramatize this a bit in the poem where you you have Wittgenstein is quite a short man, and I have this very short man kind of looking up at somebody and looking down his nose at the same time. 
so yeah it, 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 it's 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 an extraordinary and in some ways sort of quite distinctively of his time of his nation of his class that sense of yeah. duty that clearly yeah. sort of um sort of sort of came yeah. so, i mean when i was reading it i was i was kind of brought to mind of you know a lot of these mad italian futurists who are kind of banged mm, for, mm, mm. um in in the kind of lead up to 1914. Um, absolutely it's very interesting though he's 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 very clear-eyed about the whole thing and quite quite I think it's in 1914 when he's he's writing in his diary about this. He says, "I know we're going to lose this war. England is yeah. going to win this war." Um, so he he you know he, he he goes off with a very with a very strong sense of duty, but it's not a sort of um, it's not a kind of bloatedly patriotic sense of duty. I think it is very much more personal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you kind of feel the you know because when you kind of follow the narrative of the poem, you kind of. Uh, that that line Americans now and tanks. <laughs> There's such foreboding uh, <laughs> behind there, um, and you you really feel that through the text when it kind of talks about the course, the course mm, of the mm. war. Um, yeah, if we could kind of talk a little bit about Wittgenstein's Judaism, because I mean there've been some yeah uh, fairly uh, sensationalist uh, takes on this. Uh, which shall remain nameless, but there are there there were there were, there's quite a lot of references to Christ, um, the Christian faith uh, mm. in the text of the poem, and uh, it's kind of throughout really. And I kind of wondered if you could kind of explain uh, the, the kind of biographical context or, or, or the yeah. theoretical context that came from. Absolutely, I'll 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 do two things. I'll will talk a bit about the Judaism first, and, and again, I should say I I am a mere poet talking about this. If you want to, if you want the the, the, the full take on his life, Ray Monk's biography is absolutely superb. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing you learn from this book is that the the the, the story of his Judaism is an, is really another kind of of, of, of these silences that, that that run through his life. The mm -hmm. Wittgenstein family, in its in its origin, going back, I think it's something like three or four or maybe five generations is is Jewish um, in its uh, in, in, in its uh, in its sort of heritage because of the context of Austro-Hungary because of the kind of not only institutionalized but also rather sort of cultural and casual anti-semitism this is a heritage that they they, they take pains to sort of um, uh, minimize and sort of squash and kind of move away from so it's mm -hmm. it's 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 something as it were the family knows about but it's not something they talk about Mm -hmm. um, I think Carl Wittgenstein, especially the father, is 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 um, moving in 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 the most exalted circles of the sort of the, the Austro-Hungarian court at the time. Um, so it's 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 rather as with his sexuality, it's not something that he can be open about. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, talking of Wittgenstein here, not his father. Mm -hmm. So I, I I wanted to have that sort of I wanted to have that present, but not. It, it would be so easy to project a lot of what we know about the later history of the later awful history of Judaism in Central Europe mm -hmm. um, sort of into the poem. I, there are a couple of moments where, where, where I sort of foreshadow it a little, but, but I, I, I wanted it there as a sort of presence, rather like, rather like this sort of this sense of his sort of sexuality kind of, mm -hmm. um, I don't want to say a ghost, that's, the, that's wrong, but you know, a sort of a, a, a presence, a sort of infusion, something that's kind of running through the text but not dominating it. Awesome. Now, as, as far as the Christianity goes, um, Wittgenstein, um, a couple of years into the war, 
had, as, as many soldiers did, an enormous um, uh, religious crisis, something mm -hmm. like what we'd now call a, a sort of conversion experience. Mm -hmm. it, it, as, as you would expect with Wittgenstein, it came in a, in a thoroughly unconventional way. Um, he was he was um, he was passing through a town called um, Tarno, mm -hmm. and he he wanted something to read on the train. He went to the bookshop, and as he later reported it, the only literally the only book left in this bookshop was a copy of um, Leo Tolstoy's The Gospel in Brief, mm -hmm. this book that summarizes Tolstoy's own rather strange, rather mystical take on the Gospels. Yeah, I know it well. Oh well. Uh, no, I mean, uh, there's a whole other story we can tell about Tolstoy and Christianity and its, uh, <laughs> yeah, its, exactly, uh, its, yeah. its relationship to socialism, which is a, a, a rather sort of striking story. Uh -huh. um, but um, yeah, so Wittgenstein uh, reads this. Oddly enough, the, 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 the Tolstoy book is structured in this kind of propositional, numbered paragraph kind of way. So it's another influence on the, the way that the Tractatus eventually comes out. Mm -hmm. But Wittgenstein, as I say, had this, had this tremendous thoroughgoing religious conversion to the point where his um, his comrades referred to him as der Mensch mit der Evangelium, so the man with the gospel. Mm. You get this sense of him as rather a kind of nuisance, um, <laughs> having sort of found this idea, not quite going around trying to convert everybody, but you get the sense that this was this was what was informing everything. Yeah. And it's, I, I wanted to write about this for a few reasons. I mean, firstly, I, 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 was, I, I was brought up in a Christian context. Mm. And it is it is a, a very very powerful language it's a very powerful set of ideas for thinking about suffering thinking about death well I, I and I, I don't think you need to be a Christian to to sort of have a sense of that um, it's just a you know it's a, it's a it's a very sort of powerful very culturally present idea and I, I was struck as well always growing up how strange Christianity is how bodily it is how kind of sensual it is in some ways you know again, I'm not the first person to point out that you know the the Eucharist is a kind of act of cannibalism in some ways, you know, eating flesh and drinking blood and all that. Um, but I, I, I wanted, I, I, I think my, my best guess at what, what, what hit Wittgenstein so hard was just this fresh sense of how strange Christianity was, no matter having, you know, having grown up with it, having known about it. And I wanted to try and sort of carry that over in a sort of very physical and very sort of bodily kind of way. Um, so I, 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 I took inspiration from this from a, a, one, one of the, the, the writers I absolutely adore, um, Russell Hoban, um, mm -hmm. who I suppose is probably most famous for, for Ridley Walker, which is mm -hmm. just the most astonishing. I can't, yeah, I, 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 we can perhaps have an argument about this some other time, but I think, I think there's a good case. It's the, it's the greatest 20th century novel in English. It's an extraordinary <laughs> piece of writing. And if you haven't yes. read it, please read it. It is, it is, it is, it is the most extraordinary um, novel, but there's a there's a sort of um, Hoban wrote a kind of thematic sequel to the book called Pilgerman, um, which is set in set in sort of medieval Europe and the and the and the, the Near East, and it's it, it's a it's a book about mortality. It's a book about that, that I again it's a, it's such a cliche the idea of life as a journey, but the idea of life as a pilgrimage, mm -hmm. and he has this lovely line of you know the, Jerusalem being kind of the the end of all pilgrimages as it were. He has this lovely line about people who aren't going to reach Jerusalem, so Jerusalem will be wherever we are when we come to the end, which is where mm -hmm. I, I, I shamelessly pinched the title from. But I, I wanted to take that idea of the war becoming a kind of pilgrimage for Wittgenstein, and where he's mm -hmm. where he's going is is the front, where he's going is you know sort of the the end of things in some ways, the end of things for so many of his comrades.
Um, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned uh, Hoban. Uh, this isn't a name that I've encountered before, kind of shamefully. Um, but I, I kind of was doing some research on him, and he sounds very much up my alley. So I, I, I'll be certain to pick up Gilgamesh as soon as I can. Um, also, I, yeah, I kind of sort of wanted to move a little bit on to kind of sort of wider influences, be they because hmm. at the back there's this section where you talk about your sources. Um, but I was particularly grabbed by 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 Hoban, which I kind of I guess we've just covered. But you also mentioned. Uh, the late great Mark Fisher's weird and the eerie. Yeah, yeah. And he's a big favourite here at the shop. Um, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how, how kind of that that those essays might have helped you inform. Absolutely. Uh, I, I should I should say here I, I I I'm one of those people who came to Fisher sadly only after only after I'd heard about his death and I've I felt ever since as if I'm kind of um, it's like poking around a bonfire the morning after. You know, yeah. you sort of you have you have the evidence of this great fire that was here, but you're kind of con very conscious that you missed you missed what was really going on. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. but no, I I I read um, I bought the great big K punk book and got rather got rather sort of lost in it. But I I picked up the weird and the eerie, and I just I I loved that sort of central dynamic that he has between the I, I, I'm I'm simplifying somewhat here, but the 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 eerie is. Um, something that should be there but isn't and mm. the weird is something that shouldn't be there but is mm. and that struck me as such a fantastic way to think about silence because I, I, I obviously if you're going to write about silence you have to say something the white mm. page won't won't do as a writer so you've got to say something mm. and and it it, it it really helped me think about what so inevitably, I have to talk about this in slightly abstract terms, but it, 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 it's, it, it made me think about what, what you could do by taking things out, how you could make things eerie by removing things that the reader might expect, how you could be weird by inserting things into a silence that, as it were, don't belong there. And I was, I was thinking all along about, about sort of, um, I should rather pretentiously about consciousness and the nature of consciousness and, and the, the way in which it is sort of discontinuous and fragmentary and things will pop into your head from from seemingly nowhere that you then you know you're then sort of left to make sense of with with whatever resources you have so it really it when when i when i sort of decided roughly what i wanted to do with the book to to sort of tell the story of the tractatus through the form of the tractatus mm -hmm. i had this quite justified massive moment of if you'll forgive me putting it this way fuck <laughs> how do you know how 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 the hell am I what what the hell am I doing how the hell am I am I am I going to going to sort of take on this 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 philosophical masterpiece and kind of do my own thing with it and Fisher's yeah. that 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 idea of 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 something yeah as I say some something that should be there but is missing or something that shouldn't be there but is is present that really helped me think about about sort of what what, what the book would be and 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 how it would speak. Um, if, if we're going to talk about influences, the the, the other one I'd really the, the name I always like to drop because I've I've I've, I've I, I just love his work and I, I I I'm very sad that he's gone so recently is Jeffrey Hill. Mm -hmm. um, I I I, um, I encountered him again in my it's sort of early twenties and I think anybody who comes to Hill for the first time I I I wouldn't believe anybody who said they sort of got him first time. Um, but again, there's, 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 there's that joyous sense of mystery and that, 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 that luminous, um, uh, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the, the way I can put it is just, 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 just his phrasing, just the way he talks.
it, it drew me in in the way that something like the four quartets had drawn me in. Um, and and the, the, the willingness, especially in the late works, to play so much with form. I really admire a poet who, who you know, right until the end of his life was kind of so cantankerously experimental. A yeah. man who was so learned in the, you know, the, the, the sort of the, 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 the canon of English, as it were. And, 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 and you know, more than that, the kind of European tradition. But would always be doing new things. Would always be finding, you know, just new new ways to get words on the page. I I really really admire that. Um, mm. And yeah, he he was the sort of the sort of um, yeah the kind of the kind of the, the ghost sort of peering over my shoulder with this. I was kind of constantly thinking, oh God, you know, <laughs> am I am I am I am I am I imitating too much? Am I drawing too much? Or, you know, yeah. on 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 Hill. That's wonderful. Um... Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. It's, I, it's always like kind of uh, a question I always enjoy asking because there's always like treasures, that are little treasures mm. that I, I just wouldn't have encountered, you know. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for sharing those um, with us. And um, yeah, congratulations so much on the book. Um, thank you. I my colleagues will tell you I am not usually massively one for poetry um but i i yeah i adored the book i thought it was i thought it was beautiful and i'm sure um all our listeners and Kelly fisher will as well uh wherever we are when we come to the end i believe it's coming out this week yes it's out, it's out on thursday i think thursday the 20th um and you'll be able to get it in both in burley fisher and if you're not based in london you'll be able to get it in good bookshops uh, everywhere or from us online um uh yeah richard thank you so much for giving us some of your time that was really fascinating really my pleasure dan thanks thanks so much working away on this for years as i was i i sort of you start to dread how how you know whether this is going to be received let alone how it's going to be received so yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute delight to hear it's hit home with you Okay, thank you so much to Richard for giving us his time. That was absolutely wicked. Um, yeah, it was. It was, it was a really brilliant it, discussion. Um, yeah, the uh, whoever thought that logical philosophy could be so entertaining. <laughs> 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 um, yes. Okay. So moving on, uh, I think we omitted to mention ticket sales for the BF day. Um, Sam, where can we buy tickets? Yeah, you know, no, no, it's just us. <laughs> Us in, a in, a, in a church with uh yeah with 50 writers <laughs> it's gonna get weird um, <laughs> um, it's gonna get quite weird we haven't told them there's not gonna be an audience um we thought we thought we thought we'd make that a surprise <laughs> um no but you can buy tickets everything is on our website so um bellyfisherbooks.com there's a tab um which will have all the tickets and details and we're running a promotion until the end of june for early bird tickets which gets you entry to all of the events for the whole weekend and it's only 30 pounds um there's only 100 of them and i think about a third of them already sold so don't sleep on it um yeah so get involved with that and then the other the other thing i wanted to mention was um this month's may's uh indie fiction, fiction subscription uh our next podcast will be featuring um the author of elastic uh, who is Ida Marie Hedder, um, a Danish author who's uh, been translated by Sherilyn Helberg in the edition published by Lolly this month. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic and really strange book. So it's very, very up our street. Um, about birth, death, 
uh, and everything in between. So, um, which makes it sound incredibly banal, but it's it's uh, it's kind of amazing that it takes um, those two <laughs> widely discussed points and then finds a new ways yeah. of talking about them. Um, it's very bodily uh, and uh, gross and sexy and at the same time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so tune in for that. Cool, tune in for that. Uh, it's goodbye from me then. And that's goodbye from me. Thank you for listening, guys. See you all in the shop.